Welcome to episode 18 of Lil Muck, a tiny slice of the Muck podcast where we talk to people in the media and politics about their favorite stories or experiences. I'm Tina Jaramillo. And I'm Hillary Doherty. Hillary, tell us about today's guest. Awesome. So our guest today is Professor Caroline Light, currently serves as the Director of Undergraduate Studies at Harvard University and teaches courses on women, gender, and sexuality. As her Harvard bio notes, Professor Light's research explores the ways in which race, gender, and religion have shaped collective memory and archival silence. Her recent book, Stand Your Ground, A History of America's Love Affair with Lethal Self-Defense, provides a critical genealogy of our nation's ideals of armed citizens. Beginning with the centuries-old adage, quote, a man's home is his castle, she tracks the history of our nation's relationship to lethal defense, from the duty to retreat to the shoot-first, ask-questions-later ethos that prevails in many jurisdictions today. Oh, my goodness. This is so right up our alley. You yes. have no idea. Amazing. <laughs> so excited you're here with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a total honor to be here with you. Thank you. So tell us about your most recent book. Based on your research, can you tell us if there are distinctions between these laws by state? Because we, you know, we're in Florida and we have a yeah. stand your ground law. And then, for example, in Minnesota, lethal self-defense is referred to as the castle defense. Yes. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Where to even start? I mean, first of all, I'm sure you all are fully aware that Florida is the first official stand your ground state. Oh. Florida was the first state to pass in 2005 a law that is called a stand your ground law. Mm. And since 2005, these laws have spread to over half, like well over half the states. I think wow. the number is in the 30s right now of different states. And we can dig into this more, but the states vary very widely in terms of how they define their self-defense law. You mentioned the castle doctrine, and as a historian, what I did with my book, Stand Your Ground, was to look back in history before there was the United States and look at the kind of legal, cultural, political precursors to these Stand Your Ground laws to mm -hmm. find out where they came from, because they didn't just come out of nowhere. They right. came out of this really, really long history. And I tracked it back to the castle doctrine, which originates in the early 1600s in England, and is essentially this idea that, quote, a man's house is his castle. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that he's allowed to defend himself and his property within his home, and he doesn't have to back away in the face of a threat. So if somebody comes into your house, you can use lethal force to ward off that attack. Right. However, outside your house, in England and they, under English common law doctrine, you're supposed to try your best to preserve human life. So if you feel threatened, you can't just try to kill the person. You need to try first to get away. You need to make a reasonable effort to retreat. And that was known as the duty to retreat. Wow. And, and as you can see, we've come a long way um, <laughs> from the castle doctrine, which is basically in your house, you don't have to retreat to this notion in over 30, I believe it's 35 different states where um, you can, quote, stay in your ground wherever you may legally be, which is the case in Florida, which means you could be in a public street. You could be 
you know, in a shopping mall. Um, it doesn't have to be your castle. In fact, your castle follows you everywhere you go. Wow. However, <laughs> the big part of this, the, the kicker, is that these laws have never been equitably upheld. Mm -hmm. They're very selective. They always have been dating all the way back to the colonial past. Wow. Oh my goodness. And that's a lot of what we talk about on our podcast. Yes. We, 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 there's stories sometimes where we'll go into the 1800s and like, it, it's incredible how long the biases have existed. I mean, forever. And especially when it creeps into the laws, it's so dangerous, especially this kind of law, because I've even, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast where I've seen people on like local neighborhood websites citing stand your ground yes. if the homeless person's like coming towards you, like in a park. And I'm like, what? That's not, that doesn't sound right. But that's, that's like a way that you can even use it. It's bizarre. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. You, you pinpointed it. I think the, the weaponization of not just stand your ground laws, but generally the weaponization of self-defense against vulnerable populations mm. like houseless folks, the perception of certain categories of humanity as other, mm -hmm. as dangerous, as threatening. It's such, I mean, it's just a long thread that is definitive of this nation's history. And we can really, if you really look at the way self-defense as a legal doctrine gets upheld very selectively, you can see so many examples of where people in positions of relative power invoke these laws yeah. as a way to exert violence and force against people who occupy categories of social vulnerability. And I think mentioning folks without homes is just a, a perfect example of how this works. It's not just about race. It's not just about gender or just class. We kind of have to look simultaneously at all these different vectors of inequality mm. to really see how it works. It, it's so interesting. And another bit of that inequality, I guess, uh, and since you, you know, uh, are, are someone who focuses on gender, the law feels gendered as well. So is, do you think there's a gender bias in the enforcement of these laws, especially with the whole, uh, a man's home is his castle idea? Yeah. Yeah. You <laughs> hit the nail right on the head. Like we look back in time at the language used in the law and, you know, obviously when the castle doctrine, you know, came into existence, the people who could own property, the homeowners were, they were men mm -hmm. and they were also white men, what we would call white men, meaning mostly European descended men. And they were furthermore people with property. So it's a gendered, it's a class, it's a racialized terminology. And we see the residues of that even today um, in the way in which the law is now framed in gender neutral terms. So like when you, when you read the stay in your ground law with, in whatever state, in Florida and any other state, it's, it, they're very careful to use gender neutral language to say he or she may use right. lethal force. Um, and it, it completely, there's no reference to any kind of race or uh, class exclusion in the way the law, uh, you know, is adjudicated. However, when you look at the cases, when you look at the public health criminological data, you can see that absolutely the way the law plays out is very gendered. Mm -hmm. And I guess the biggest example I can give of that, and, and we can talk about, there's tons of like contemporary examples we could look at, but um, when you look at the way our nation has addressed 
the domestic violence and intimate partner violence mm. and sexual violence, you can look at the way in which self-defense law does not usually protect women when they use lethal force to Correct. protect themselves from their number one statistical threat, who, as I'm sure you both know, their own male acquaintances mm-hmm. and intimate partners. So, so time after time after time, this is pre stand your ground law, as well as in the stand your ground era that we're in right now, there's so many cases where a woman has fought back against her attacker, who is her own spouse or her ex um, or her boyfriend, and ends up in prison if she harms him or kills him. Right. Because these laws for self-defense were never made to protect women against their largest statistical threat. And we and even... I think... Oh, sorry. Go yeah, ahead. Sorry. Please, go, go ahead. No, 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 please go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> One extra thing, if y'all want to pick up on this, this thread is a lot of the, the proponents of stand your ground laws today. This is the thing that just really <laughs> burns me up mm-hmm. is that the people who support the stand your ground laws support them as necessary for women's protection. Right. Yeah. The irony. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. The irony, the cruel irony that these stand your ground laws have been sold to us as a means by which we as women can be safer. And yet, and yet when women try to stand their ground against their largest statistical threat, they end up in prison, they end up criminalized. Um, in other words, they're, they find that their right to self-defense is just non-existent. Right. Because these laws were never really made to protect women from their largest statistical threat. They were made to protect women from so-called stranger danger, which is a much lesser occurrence in mm. actual, you know, in actual criminological and public health data. But anyway, <laughs> that's, no, that's, that's a really good one yeah. part. It's a really good point. Really annoying. No, but it's a really good point because also, you know, we also have to take in a, in in uh, into account who's enforcing the law. So if you're in a county where uh, it's predominantly poor, uh, is the state attorney right. actually going to side with, you know, I feel like it's who's going to bring the defense and who it applies to. Like there was a case in Florida, there was a woman of color who tried to use this and she wasn't allowed to use it. And it was around the same time as this notorious, you know, uh, George Zimmerman, Trayvon Martin case where George Zimmerman murdered this young man and used a child. Yes. Child. I'm so sorry. You're right. And, um, and, uh, used this defense and got away with it. And even like recently was like auctioning the gun off on eBay or something, something horrific, like just a pig anyway. But, um, around that same time, there was a woman in Northern Florida who had killed Alexander. Yes. Thank you so much. And she tried to use this defense and it wasn't, she couldn't use it, it's, right? It's yeah, it's yep, horrible. Yep. And that's a perfectly illustrative case, actually. That's something that I mean, honestly, the reason I wrote this book uh, was in response to Trayvon Martin's murder. Mm. It wasn't even in response to the the outcome of the case. I started writing this after after Trayvon Martin was gunned down, a, a child, you know, a teenager carrying iced tea and skittles in his parents' own neighborhood in Florida, and a neighborhood watch person armed, who wasn't even supposed to be armed, Mm. instigated, instigated. This is also in the law, it says, in the standard ground law, you cannot claim self-defense if you instigate the deadly confrontation. And so, so 
so Martin did not instigate this confrontation. He was trying to walk home and he was attacked by a neighborhood watchman. By, by a grown-up, by an adult. A grown-up with a gun <sighs> who, uh, who managed to claim that he was in fear for his life. And the jury supported that. The jury was instructed to imagine that his claim was reasonable. Mm. And indeed, uh, you know, the defense brought evidence of uh, Zimmerman's wounds and that he had been threatened because uh, apparently Trevon Martin was banging his head against the concrete and he was in fear for his life and therefore shot and killed him and was justified. And at the very same time that George Zimmerman is exonerated and and able to live a free life after killing a teenager, mm. um, Marissa Alexander, who had only recently, I believe a couple of weeks prior to her encounter with her abusive spouse, her estranged spouse, had given birth to the couple's baby girl, mm. was trying to get into the house to retrieve her belongings, to get away from an abusive relationship. When the abusive spouse came home, confronted her, and refused to let her leave. Oh. He, he had a couple of his kids there from a prior relationship, so the fact of there being kids present when this happened, I think, amplified the um, mm. the jury's kind of um, skepticism of Alexander's claims. But essentially, she got her gun that she was licensed to have and fired a warning shot to escape from the threats of her violent spouse. And he called the police and had her arrested. And she spent several years in prison. Oh my God! Before, with a brand new baby. So remember, oh. this is a this is a a mom who had just recently given birth. Spent the first few years of her child's life in prison because she didn't kill anybody. She shot warning shots in a stand your ground state, and they they refused to hear the claim of stand your ground because, according to state attorneys. Marissa Alexander wasn't in fear for her life. She was, quote, angry instead. Oh, God. And this dates back to the ages-old trope of the angry yeah. black woman, right. which excludes black women from consideration as vulnerable, as victims, as subjugated, um, and frames them instead as being somehow <laughs> inhumanly uh, empowered. Mm. And, and angry. And so that excluded her from consideration of self-defense because under self-defense doctrine, you must have been in, quote, fear for your life. So think about what that means, that the jury in George Zimmerman's case believed his claims that he was in fear for his life, right. but could not possibly believe that Marissa Alexander was actually in fear for her life when she shot warning mm. shots to escape her estranged spouse. It says everything about not just seeing your ground laws and their selective application, but about our nation's larger understandings of threat and vulnerability. Mm. So this is that's why it's a historical story. Like I've yeah. had a lot of you know friends who are historians are like, oh, you're really doing the contemporary thing these days. <laughs> like, yes, but this is all because of our nation's historical amnesia. Mm. It's like we want to forget that we're a nation built on settler, colonialist, racial capitalist uh, violence and um, heteropatriarchy. These are vectors of inequality that 
continue to reside with us, as we know, <laughs> right, yeah. um, today. And yet we do everything we can as a nation to sweep them under the rug and forget about them because they're so uncomfortable for us. Oh, oh so my historical amnesia should yes. be like on T-shirts. I like it's it. the greatest thing I've ever heard <laughs> yeah. in my life. It's so. Right? Exactly. I mean, it's, it's just. It's why you we know, are where we are. Lives. Yes, and it's why we are where we yes. are. We keep we keep repeating these things over. We yes. see them coming. We see the errors coming, and they keep going over yes. and over. It's incredible. And we see the this, and we see the historical amnesia when people reelect people same. to positions, uh, despite yes. crimes or other things that they've done. Yeah, it's yes. it's incredible. So it I, is, I, and it's, yeah, it's unnerving. Anyway, <laughs> so I wanted to ask you because you were talking about you know vulnerable uh, groups and Florida, and uh, you recently penned an article for the Tampa Bay Times where you discussed DeSantis's attempt to extend Stand Your Ground uh, and the ramifications that could have. Could you talk a little bit about that? Oh wow, yes. Um, to me, that is oh, that's the perfect social text to unpack. For this moment, and um, it's it's so multifaceted. It could take us hours, so I'll just focus on the parts that really resonate with self-defense. Um, in my mind, this is DeSantis's bid for presidential election in oh, the future. This yeah. is, God this help is DeSantis. Us all. <laughs> I know, I know, right? Uh, and it's very calculated, and it's like. Um, it's a very complicated legal landscape in which he can weave together a a weaponization of self-defense against, in this case, protesters. So demonstrators who are, you know, out protesting in public streets, which is what's happening around our nation right now. Which is protected Um, under our first amendment. (laughs) Which is absolutely protected under the first amendment, but it is essentially saying that, not only are we not going to protect your right, your First Amendment right to protest and to demonstrate in public spaces, including streets, we're going to take reactionary populations that predominantly disproportionately possess firearms because they've been empowered to over the centuries, and we're going to encourage them to take up firearms against you and to get in their cars and mow you over if they disagree with your protest. And we're going to legally immunize them against prosecution when they harm, mutilate, or kill demonstrators for, for instance, racial justice. And, and that is, I mean, I know that that doesn't take into consideration every single facet here, but it, it also renders, certain forms of property sacrosanct. And I think this is this is an element of stand your ground epistemology that sometimes, um, I, myself included, sometimes we, we don't scrutinize enough, but it is about rendering certain forms of po- uh, property sacrosanct and um, superseding the value of human life. So, mm. for instance, there's a caveat in DeSantis's proposal that basically says that you can take a, you can um, shoot and kill someone who is looting or rioting or harming public property. So right. a person who, for instance, is um, defacing a Confederate statue, of which there are so many in Florida, I couldn't uh. believe there are so many Confederate <laughs> statues still standing in Florida. Yeah. But, a, but a demonstrator could go and deface a, a statue 
and a person with a gun could take up that gun and shoot them right. and then claim that they were protecting property. Right. That, that statue has more value than human life. Yeah. Right. So it's actually, when you look at this proposal, there's so many layers of uh, evil genius in it because it's not just about state violence, authorizing state violence, like authorizing the police to tear gas peaceful protesters, etc. Um, it's also about empowering armed citizens to use their firearms, to discipline the masses who dare to stand up against racial injustice and anti-Black violence. And, and that, to me, is the essential brilliance, but also horror of this proposal, um, because it, it essentially makes it open season for mm. armed citizens mm. to, to uh, Boogaloo Boys, um, Proud Boys, um, people like the kid out west who took a firearm to, um, right. quote, defend property and end up killing two people, wounding another, and may possibly get away with it because he claimed to have been in fear for his life. So defending property in this nation, you know, this is opening the door to saying that citizens can defend property with lethal violence and thinking about how that will become weaponized, especially against minoritized groups who are protesting against um, anti-black violence in this nation. Right. And it's, it's just, so we've had some lawmakers here in Florida attempting to repeal stand your ground. I know Chevron Jones, who is representative, but now he's a state Senator. He's taken up issue, especially with like arming teachers. He was like, you know, we need to put something in here that says that if teachers are in fear of their life, they can't shoot a student in the classroom because we're step one step away from that. But like, he was appeal- trying to appeal to the lawmakers about that, but like, what are what is the solution here? What do you think the solution is? Is it just repealing the law? Is that even possible? I mean, I don't know. How do we step back from this now? Ah, uh, yeah that that is a million dollar question. I wish I knew. Mm. I wish I knew because I I don't see these laws going away. And this is this is where you might see my contemporary naivete uh, coming to the surface because when I wrote this book, I think I naively thought that these stay your ground laws, once people really paid attention to them, especially in the wake of Trayvon Martin's murder, um, that they would disappear because of public disapproval, that the public would start to wake up and say, these are horrible. How can we allow these laws? Mm-hmm. And that state by state, you would see the public voting out of office, all of those people who support this kind of, uh, you know, spurious legislation. And instead, <laughs> since the book was published, we've seen more stand your ground laws passing. We've seen not only more stand your ground laws passing, but the existing stand your ground laws, like the one in Florida, has been amplified by another layer of, um, legal immunization is that the burden of proof has shifted mm-hmm. away from the defendant and onto the prosecution, right. meaning that whereas, you know, once you as a defendant had to prove that you were in fear for your life, now the prosecution has to prove that you were not in fear oh, for your life. Goodness. And how do you prove that? So the other layer, too, that we're starting to see a little bit more of nowadays is police invoking yes. your ground. Oh, I was going to ask and that. And yes, ground. Yes was never intended to apply to law enforcement because the law enforcement, as we know, already enjoy substantial 
forms of immunity when they claim to have been in fear for their life and shooting um, when shooting civilians, especially civilians un- of color and unarmed civilians, unarmed of color. civilians of color. And and we know that is the case. But yet we do see um, more law enforcement trying to invoke stay in your ground, sometimes um, successfully. And so back to your question, like, I wish I wish I had a good solution. My feeling all along um, was that public outrage eventually would, would get to the point where we would push back with our ballots, that we, mm. as, a, as a community outraged by the violence of this kind of legislation, would stand up and say, enough already, now let's get rid of it. But the lobbying powers for, for um, armed citizenship or, mm. you know, a guns everywhere type of culture um, the groups that have been lobbying for staying your ground laws are also the same groups that are, you know, very interested in deregulation of all firearms, except when it comes to communities of color. Mm-hmm. Um, and it feels like that has been such a powerful force, especially given our larger society's culture of fear. And I think amidst the coronavirus, um, amidst this um, turbulent political era we're witnessing right now, I think fear in this nation is amplified. And I think a fearful population is willing to sacrifice its liberties in many ways for this promise mm-hmm. of lethal self-defense. And and so until we can immunize ourselves against that epidemic of fear that we're saturated in right now, until we can until we can shed that historical amnesia I was talking about before, I I feel like we might be stuck with these for a while. Yeah. And I, I hate that. I hate to sound so uh, pessimistic and dystopic about it, but um, I, I, I think that um, until our public sentiment shifts on this, until we understand that the myth of universal self-defense is just that, a spurious myth, um, one selectively applied, I would even argue that the vast majority of us do not have access to, to the true promise of standing your ground laws. It's a very small minority of people who can really claim to be standing their ground in the moment that they need it. Um, even still, we believe in this seductive promise of lethal self-defense as that which would, will deliver us from insecurity. Mm. And I feel like that's just such a popular motif in this nation. So in answer to your question, I wish I had. I wish I had a really good answer. I, <laughs> no, that I was a great answer. <laughs> our, our our elected officials pushing back, and I, you know, I hope that that maybe in the coming, um, maybe maybe with um, the Biden administration, maybe we start to see some shifts in terms of federal support. Um, right. Well, well, you're right with with the the, the lobbies and, and the different groups, the the pro gun groups, the. Uh, NRA, you know, these other groups, um, you know, have a lot of money and a lot of backing. Yeah. And, and it well, and it kind of uh, segues me into, uh, I, you know, when I was uh, looking at uh, some of your work, I saw that you had a course called Guns in the U.S., a love story. And <laughs> yeah. it just sounded really interesting. And um, what is it? What is that about? Can you tell us a little um, bit about that? Yes. And it, right before we started talking, that's what I was working on. <laughs> I was getting ready. So a few years ago, um, after my book came out, and particularly after the mass shooting at, um, at um, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, 
a friend of mine who works in um, the general education department at Harvard asked if maybe I would consider producing a course on guns because there wasn't any course like that at Harvard. And yet this is a really specifically um, pressing and urgent social problem, um, especially affecting young people who don't often get a voice. And, and, and so uh, that's what inspired me to write the course. And essentially what it does, it's, um, it's mostly a historical look at U.S. gun culture from the perspective of how does it feel to be a target? And that is a revision of the famous words um, of um, W.E.B. Du Bois, how does it feel to be a problem? And it focuses on gun culture from the perspective of those most targeted by gun violence. Wow. So we go, I, I divide up the Second Amendment into three compartments. So one is to keep, which is about property. So being property and owning property. And that looks back at our nation's heritage of settler, colonialist, racial, capitalist violence. Um, And it looks at how guns were used to maintain those structures of inequality and power. Um, And then the second is called to bear, which is about self-defense. Who has been able to use firearms in self-defense? And that really is from my research on the weaponization of self-defense. And the final one is called well-regulated. And that is the unit devoted to interrogating how and why our nation regulates or doesn't firearms and ownership in the way that it does. And we end with um, a debate on policy. What are some concrete policies from all different political perspectives that have been floated to try to help combat the problem of firearm violence in the United States? And the reason it's a love story is because it's focused on that quandary of this love affair that we have with the very objects that are um, causing our demise in this nation. So how is it that those of us who are most subjugated often by gun violence end up taking up firearms for lack of other solutions in this nation to the kind of racial, um, uh, sexual, gender, and class violences that are endemic to our history? Wow, I I want to take this class so badly. (laughs) Y'all can come. I'm excited. I would love to have you. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Well, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. This is amazing. Incredible. uh, I really, I know that I speak for Tina when I say that we really appreciate the work that you're doing and and shining a light on these this such, awful law. Well, and such incredible research oh my gosh. Um, and knowledge that you have. Thank you so much for, for sharing with us. Thank you so much for the conversation and for doing this amazing podcast that I really enjoyed. So this is a true honor for me. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Have a good weekend. All right. You too. All right. Bye. bye. All right. Our next guest is Melba Pearson. Yes. So let me introduce, let me give a little intro. So Melba Pearson is an attorney specializing in civil rights and criminal law with an emphasis on policy. She is the director of policy and programs for Florida International University's Center for the Administration of Justice, as well as a senior fellow faculty in the Department of Criminology and Criminal Justice. Her work centers on the expansion of the use of prosecutorial 
prosecutorial performance indicators for more transparency, equity, and racial justice in the criminal justice system. Before joining FIU, Ms. Pearson spent three years as deputy director of the ACLU of Florida, where she worked to change uh, police practices, expand voting rights, and an reform the criminal justice system. Previously, Ms. Pearson was an assistant state attorney in Miami-Dade County for 16 years, culminating as assistant chief in the career criminal robbery unit, supervising junior attorneys while prosecuting homicides. Melba, I want to welcome you, but before you say anything, I'm going to say this. <laughs> because we have a mutual friend, Mary Eakins. Oh, Mary. She worked yes. on your campaign. Yes. Like the loveliest of love, lovely women. And she like helped uh, connect us so we could do this. But uh, you did run for state attorney in Miami-Dade County in 2020. And I want to thank you. And I know that you weren't successful in that run. And that's it is what it is. But what you did as far as like talking about progressive criminal justice reform is so important and yes. it's so necessary. And so you are one of the most incredible candidates I've ever been able to witness Aww. run for office. I'm so excited yes. that you did it. And uh, even though you weren't successful, the changes that could be made for having those conversations and bringing those things to light is so important. So thank you for doing that. Yes, thank oh, you so you, much. Y'all are so kind. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And it's an honor and a privilege to be on with you and to just, you know, chit-chat and talk about good trouble, right? Yes. It's all about moving Ugh. forward and, you know, taking the lessons from the past, making sure not to repeat them, but using history to help inform what we're doing moving forward and to make sure we're able to make real actionable change in our community so yeah super psyched yes so let's start with your work as a prosecutor specifically um the work with the prosecutorial performance indicators can you tell us a little bit about that and what what you're doing sure so i joined fiu center for the administration of justice shortly after my campaign ended so i joined in september of 2020 and the work centers around a dashboard uh, called the Prosecutorial Performance Indicators. It's a list of 55 different indicators broken out over nine objectives, falling into key buckets of looking at the capacity of the office, so like performance management, looking at racial justice and equity, and also being transparent with the public to really shine a light on what justice looks like in your jurisdiction, right? Mm. So uh, currently, we have worked with four offices, and they all four have released their dashboards. Tampa and Jacksonville were the first in the state of Florida to ever do any kind of transparency work in the prosecutor's office, as well as Cook County and in Chicago and Milwaukee. And so all four offices have released their dashboards to the public. It's something that is easily navigatable. You can just hop on any of the websites for those four offices, and then you can take a look at where they rate with regards to uh, how soon they reach out to survivors when they come into the system. How long does it take cases to be disposed either by trial or by plea? How many cases are getting filed and then dismissed later versus not filing bad cases at all, right? Because you think mm. about the collateral consequences, you know, it, what, what difference does it make? Oh, yeah, well, you know, I'll just file this case and we'll sort it out. And if it comes out later on that there's exculpatory evidence showing the person didn't do it or the person had an alibi, we'll just dismiss the case later. 
Well, that could mean that the case could be lingering for a year or two. Mm. The person may be in custody or even if they're out of custody, they've had to report to, uh, you know, probation or somebody on a monthly basis to indicate that they're still in the jurisdiction. And that places a lot of strain on families and on people, especially if you didn't do anything. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, those are some of the things that it measures. And I just think it's a really important first step in transparency so that number one offices are getting used to a culture of data Mm -hmm. so it's about oh we don't have a race problem here Mm -hmm. oh maybe you do maybe you don't but how do you know if you're not measuring right you're you're guessing so getting back to that fact that as attorneys we want evidence right so having that data gives you evidence to be able to drive policy change and fix things and fix problems right like One of the metrics is diversity in the prosecutor's office at the line level, so your regular prosecutor that's in the courtroom every day, and in leadership. So if you're seeing that you don't have a lot of black male representation in your line prosecutors, that's a problem, right? Mm -hmm. Especially if a high percentage of the people you're prosecuting on a day-to-day basis are black males. So where's the representation, right? Right. So when you look at that data and you're like, oh, man, yeah, we do have a problem, then what can you do? Okay, well, we have to more aggressively reach out to, you know, the HBCU law schools, right? We have to go to different job fairs. We need to recruit, especially now that we've discovered this thing called Zoom, you know, (laughs) you can actually recruit in all 50 states without leaving your office. So these are all things that, this data dashboard can can be used for to drive positive change in our community. Well, wow. I think the data is also important too because nobody's going to go, oh, I'm racially biased. Like that's never going right? to happen. Right. And so the data is like, here it is. Yeah. Like it's right in front it's, of you. Like here's you. where we have a problem and we needed to work on it. It's really important to have, to have yes. that. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly. incredible. And also, you know, it, it, it's not – a lot of times people are like, well, I'm not racist. Mm-hmm. Okay, legit, you may not be racist. And, mm-hmm. and that's, this is not, this tool is never going to say that one person's racist or not. Right. That's just not what it's designed to do. Right. But the outcomes can end up having disparate impact on different groups. So even though you may have put a policy in, in place that on its face is race neutral and didn't have any ill intent behind it, the mm. outcomes could be racially biased and causing problems. And that has to be addressed. Mm. So that's what the tool can help be used for, among right. other things. Right. right. And then people can reevaluate the policies and the things that they're doing to to recalibrate. So that's interesting. I wanted to ask you, um, as a prosecutor, what is your view of stand your ground? And what would you like to see change? Because you're on this side of it of prosecuting someone that might be using the stand your ground defense. So how has that worked? What, what is your experience with that? So uh, I hate stand your ground. Mm. Many prosecutors, whether they'll say it publicly or not, hate stand your ground because it is a hot mess the way that it is. Uh, it was set forth in Florida, right? So before stand your ground, stand your ground sort of came into like into popularity around the late 2000s, you know, it's like 2008, 2009, when you start to see these laws pop up around the country. It was really pushed forward by the NRA and by ALEC. Um, I forgot what their, their, what their acronym stands for, but they're a conservative policy yes, think tank. Yes, they're, they're that huge. Draft, 
Yes. Humongous. And they literally create drafts of bills, send it to their, you know, aligned legislators around the country, and they legit will just introduce the bill. Like, they won't even, like, Oof. they just literally take yeah. the Alec name off of it, put their name on it, yes. and keep it moving. Wow. So that's how Stand Your Ground basically came to be in Florida. So the problem with, so before Stand Your Ground, there was the castle doctrine, which right. is basically a person's home is their castle. So if you break into somebody's home, the in, the inference in the legal protection is if somebody's breaking into your home, they mean to do you harm. So you don't have to wait around and retreat and have a discussion. Somebody breaks into your house, you can kill them. That's mm-hmm. to- totally permissible, right? And then there was also self-defense. So right. if somebody presented a threat, then obviously you had the ability to, you know, defend yourself in a reasonable manner, right? So if somebody is, I don't know, throwing like ice cubes at you, (laughs) you know, you can't turn around and shoot them, right? But if somebody approaches you with a knife or, you know, is much bigger and physically more imposing and you're like, man, I can't, I can't take them in a fight. And I think this person really, you know, is intending to harm me. Then you can use deadly force to protect yourself. Well, stand your ground kind of removes all of that. And it's basically like, if you're anywhere that you are legally allowed to be, and at any time, whatever, if you are presented and you perceive that this person is a deadly threat, and it doesn't have to be, like, logical. It just has to be, like, reasonable, which I know sounds kind of funny, but let me kind of yeah. break that down a little bit more. So if somebody, you perceive them to be a threat, then you can use deadly force to protect yourself. And that's so, so vague and broad. Right. Mm-hmm. As, as to what someone what I might consider being a threat versus another person considers a threat. Exactly. Exactly. So it removes that duty to retreat. So in other words, if you're getting into a fight with somebody on your front, in, uh, like on the sidewalk in front of your house. Right. Or downstairs from your apartment building. Right. You know, before stand your ground. If you could re- like turn around and run to your house and just slam the door and end the confrontation there, you were required to do that before using deadly force. Mm. Now, stand your ground takes away your duty to retreat. And the way I like to explain it, it takes away your duty to use common sense. Yeah. <laughs> because, yeah. you know, there's no duty to de-escalate. There's no duty to be like, you know what, let me just walk away. Let yeah. me. It's all, oh, I felt threatened. So let me use deadly force. Oh my so I've prosecuted three cases with Stand Your Ground, um, two of them being homicides, right? Mm. Of the three, I got two guilty verdicts and one not guilty verdict. Mm, wow. So, you know, and, and the one with the not guilty was more that the jury just hated my victim. That's just period, end of story. Mm. It was like a 20-something-year-old guy, kind of a party guy, you know, and it, it just, the, the way things panned out, you know, it just it was very messy. But of the other two, you know, the, the reason why we were able to overcome it is because, again, there was just the jury was able to thankfully to see through the foolishness that the defense was putting forward. Right. Like yeah, well. <laughs> the, the, the people did not really, you know, present a threat. Um, and one of the cases, which was a very high profile media case down here in Miami, um, it was a white uh, security guard who shot two unarmed African-American men, killing one and paralyzing the other. And it was the type of situation where he was like, 
oh, they were looking at me funny. Oh, they were God. wearing red. <gasps> I thought they were gang members. Oh, so I God. shot and killed them. Right. And the reality was it was the Heat playoff week. <sighs> and the Heat game, this was outside of a strip club. Oh, and so God. the game was literally on. They came out to their car to have a smoke. And then they were going back into the strip club. So it, it, it's like, and everybody was wearing red because he yeah. wore the playoff. Yeah. Like, you oh know, my so God. his, his, you know, his perception was not based in reason. And these people did not present him with any kind of threat. Yet he, you know, basically ended both of their lives. Oh and, you know, God. one in fact and one in the way they know it. So yeah. that's why I look at Stand Your Ground and say, you know, if this was traditional self-defense, like, <laughs> listen, he would have had to flee out from day one because it's like there was no way under any self-defense permutation that he could have made that work. Right. Yeah. But it has to drag out. It has to go to a, you know, what happens with Stand Your Ground is that you assert that, OK, I want to use the Stand Your Ground defense. That means that there has to be a pretrial hearing where the judge decides whether or not you're entitled to that right. protection. Right. Oh my and goodness. If the, yeah. And if the judge says, okay, what happens to you? You know, I understand it made sense. Then the case gets dismissed. Right. If the judge yeah. makes that. And, and, and in your experience, do the judges tend to more often than not say, yeah, you can use this as a defense. It's a mixed bag. Um, the Tampa Bay Tribune, I believe it was, did a very interesting study on the use of stand your ground in Florida. And it became very clear that it split along racial lines. Mm. So if you were a white shooter and oh, you God. shot a, a black or brown person, you were more likely to get that immunity as opposed to if it was a black person shooting another black person or a black person shooting a white person. So, you know, statistically, it doesn't look good. Now, I, I, what I've seen in Miami, the most, most of the time, they don't, they just send it to the jury. So in other words, they don't give that protection and they let, you can still make that same kind of argument in front of the jury. So it's sort of a hybrid, you know, self-defense stands your ground. Okay. Uh, but most of the time they don't, they'd rather the jury come back not guilty than they take the heat of saying, oh yeah, I gave this person immunity and the facts didn't really, you know, objectively didn't warrant it. Mm. It's just, it's incredible. And so now we have, you know, this Governor DeSantis, I say this, like everybody know. knows who he is, like this Ugh. Governor DeSantis, and he's got this like, this like basically uh, the, this mob riot bill or whatever he's trying to push. He did it before the Capitol like right. insurrection last week, whatever that was. And, like now here we are where it's yeah, now it's, he's trying to push it again using, yes, using which this, we all know it's right crap but right now yeah. he's trying to use that so, as a, a means to continue to push that bill forward and so this is a very harmful bill as well and of course it's again it's this racial bias because we know who's trying to stand up for rights it's black and brown people they're in the streets it's like trying to fight for like equality and equity and like here we are with this another bill that like makes stand your ground it's it's just as bad it's like even worse because you could just kill somebody in the street for holding a sign and and how do you feel about that what do you think about this this bill Ooh, well, one thing for sure, I have been an outspoken critic of the governor, um, mm. basically, since he's taken office. So, yeah. um, but this bill is just the height of, of just racism and, and just foolishness, just sheer and utter <laughs> foolishness. Yeah. The way, there's no other word for it, right? Yeah. But the, the, the bottom line is, this is a solution in search of a problem. 
So the way mm. he, he initially started phrasing it was, oh, my gosh, look at the events this summer. Look at yeah. George Floyd. Look at Portland. You know, we got to make sure that this doesn't happen here. So we're going to tighten up our laws. Meanwhile, in reality, we did not see anything on the level of Portland. No. Also, a lot of the reports of, the, of Portland got overblown in some ways, right? Because it wasn't like the entire city was on fire, right? It wasn't, right. It wasn't that serious. No. Um, but we did not have that level of problems here in Florida, right? So that's number one. And then number two, then he went way beyond the scope of, okay, well, we want to make sure people can protest safely. And he gets into saying that you can use stand your ground if you see that someone is going to quote unquote loot a business. Yeah. So now stand your ground is going to be used in protection of property, not of people. Because stand your ground the way it stands right now is in protection of a person. Mm, But now it's expanding it to protect property and say, oh, someone is about to, their business is about to get looted. And there's no clarification that it has to be your business so you're right. protecting your oh property right. it's just, oh and it's still you have to see looting yeah so and it's still putting property above above human life which is crazy to me wow i mean at the end of the day but that's america right yeah. like yeah. we are but, a capitalistic society ooh, the girl. entire the entire country was built on the backs and the death of black and brown people mm-hmm. so you know, we, we can't act surprised now right. that all of a sudden they're prioritizing, oh, my God, you looted the target. Therefore, we got to figure out a way to put you in prison for 10 years. Oh but you can run through the Capitol, literally yeah. defecated the Capitol with a Confederate flag, which was the flag of the traitors back right. in the Civil War. Right. And like, it's all good. Oh my god! Well, that's the, that's true. So we talk about it. Uh, we talked about it today when we were we were recording our larger muck episode for this week. Yeah. But about how what happened in the Capitol. It's like it, you know we have never come to terms with the racism that has started in this that was the beginning of this country right. and the death and the mass murder and yes building this the entire country's been built on the backs of, of black and brown people and like we've just never come to the you know we got to come to the table about all of these things that have happened it's like this is why we are we, like it wasn't a surprise that people stormed because of this presidency but like really taking a step back even further it's because this sole group of people like joy reed said in that amazing uh tweet like this soul generation yep. people in generation after generation think that they have the right, right. to do whatever the fuck that oops sorry i'm sorry i'm gonna curse whatever <laughs> yeah. the fuck they want to do that that word is used on the muck yes. all the time but like it, it, they they think they can do whatever they want and laws like this further embolden those folks right. to do whatever they well, want and not only is it you know, about uh, protecting property and being able to take someone's life, but it's about criminalizing. Yes. And, and putting people in jail. Right. You know, like that's a big part of this. Taking away too. their voting rights. If yeah. they have voting, yeah. you know, if, if they just re- mm-hmm. were returning citizens and they received their voting rights, back, we're going to take those away too. So you, now you can further be disillusioned with democracy and not be involved. And like, it's just, a, it's just like an endless cycle of, of crap. It's, it's terrible. It's terrible. Absolutely. And then, you know, some of the other insidious parts and, you know, so a bill has been introduced and I have not had an opportunity to fully read it yet. It's about 52 pages. I know that there there's one or two positive things out of this new anti-protest bill that I'm actually okay with, but the rest of it is crap. Um, But from, from what I can see so far. 
But, you know, some of the insidious things in Governor DeSantis's proposal, you know, included taking away people's benefits if you were a government employee or you got some kind of government oh benefit gosh. and you are, you know, involved in a protest, you can lose all of that, mm. right? So again, that's attaching your First Amendment right to benefits, which is problematic. It allows you to be able to run over somebody who is at an unlawful assembly. So in other words, much like what we saw in Miami, where yeah. people shut down I-95 for you know certain periods of time in protest and in support of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so many others that lost their lives to police violence. If you are in the street and that's a quote-unquote unpermitted pro- protest, then you're allowed to get to, to run people over. You can just mm. run them over. Mm. And so, you know, that I do not believe is in this version of the bill because, you know, the scuttlebutt that I'm hearing is that law enforcement groups and and even conservative groups are like, you know, dude, like that's just not going to work. Like you you can't do that. But maybe that was always the tactic, right? Like you introduce something, you start talking about something so crazy and you know, you let, then you can sneak something else in. Yeah. So exactly. You said there were a couple of, um, (laughs) you you said there were a couple of positive things that you saw in there. What, what are those uh, aspects of the bill? So what I had seen was something basically addressing the, the uh, usage of doxing where people's, private information, your address, your phone number, um, you know, where you work and like your physical address is released into cyberspace with the intent of intimidating you and encouraging like-minded individuals to find you and attack you, right? Mm. Um, You know, I've, I've been very close to people that have experienced that. It is used most often by uh, white wing extremist groups, especially those folks who are fighting in support of Confederate statues. So if you're out there talking about, oh, in my community, I want the statue torn down, all of a sudden, all your information shows up online. And then it's uh, calling all the patriots to teach this person a lesson and let them know that this crap is not acceptable here, right? So this bill actually has provisions to address doxing and make that, you know, criminalize it more so, number one. And number two, bring enhanced penalties. So that to me is positive because many times activists constantly are are in fear because you're out here trying to do good work, but you don't want to have to lose your life as a result. Or or put your family in danger. Your family. Yeah. Exactly. So I saw that as a positive, which that should be its own standalone bill. (laughs) The rest of this this needs, needs to go, you know. Wow. So uh, you do a lot of advocacy work. Is there something that you're currently working on that you'd like to talk about? Yeah. So my my two main focus uh, points at this moment are, number one, the anti-protest bill, right? So I'm working on a deeper analysis. Uh, Mondays, I do a segment on Facebook Live called Mondays with Melba. It's on my Facebook page, Melba Pearson, at 6 p.m. every Monday. Yes. Monday, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And so I break down current events and issues of the day. And I also give calls to action around how people can mobilize around a particular issue. Mm. So with the release of this bill, uh, I'm going to give my analysis of the bill. And then I'm also going to encourage people to reach out to their state reps and state senators to be like, listen, if this bill gets out of committee, you need to vote no. And we're going to hold you accountable if you don't. Right. And these are the reasons why. And also to reach out to most likely 
It will go to the Criminal Justice Committee, which I believe Senator Jason Pizzo is the chair of. You know, people need to be flooding his office and saying, you know what? Don't even give this bill a hearing. Yes. Do it Republican style. Do it Mitch McConnell style. Yes. Do it before it even, you know, that that's the way you got to handle these bills. So, you know, and knowing that he has his eye on maybe running for governor in 2022, we need to connect the two and remind him, like, yeah. we don't catch amnesia the way folks used to in the past. <laughs> so, yes. So that's one big portion. So I'm really doing a huge push around defeating that bill. And then the second aspect that I'm working on is trying to uplift the survivors at Lowell. So Lowell Prison is a prison for women located in Ocala, which is about 30, 30 to 45 minutes outside of Orlando. And the women there have been enduring rampant sexual assault <gasps> and sexual abuse for decades. What the decades. hell? Yes. And the Department of Justice issued a very scathing report, like a 30-plus page report uh, in the last couple of weeks, that, number one, gave the Department of Corrections 49 days from the issuance of the report to, you know, make some amends and and to hold somebody accountable. Uh, But, you know, most importantly, they detailed and really laid out the horrors that the women suffered from, you know, basically the guards being like, oh, you want your monthly allotment of sanitary items this month? Well, you need to have sex with me. Or oh just literally coming into their, you know, I'm sorry, trigger warning, trigger warning, yeah. trigger warning. But like, you know, coming into their cells at any hour of the, the, the night and just forcing themselves upon oh them, right? God. Like this was, and it was to the point that everybody knew about it. Everybody talked about it. So my big push is to number one, you know, move forward some legislation this session that will protect uh, women and just people in general in prison. We do have the Prison Rape Elimination Act, which is from the Fed, but it has literally provided them absolutely no protection in the situation. And my other push is for everyone in that prison to be fired. I'm talking from yes. the warden down to Ooh, the person that's on the floor yes. because oh they all knew. They all knew it, it was impossible. The, the the rampant nature of this, it was impossible for you to be like in that prison and not know what was going on. And, and, and so you know, if you were, I, I haven't even heard of this. I think I read something in Tampa Tribune. Was there something in the Tampa paper about this? I it feel like, should be because it was it was a bombshell. Yeah, I think it came out during the holidays. So, but, yeah, but, it was like um, mid December. Yes, okay, I remember this now. But but how? So if we get the legislation, like, are there reps and state senators in that area that would be willing to like put this through? Because we need somebody who's representing that area where the prison is, right? Yeah, so that would be Representative Anna Escamani. Oh, who come is, on, got it. I yeah, mean, she's uh, she's a warrior. I yeah. love her. Um, so she would be definitely down to to um, move to introduce that legislation, and I'm sure there'd be senators that would get on board with that as well. Uh, like you know, probably Senator Perry Thurston, you know, mm-hmm. other yeah. folks up in that area, because that's just basic. This is just human decency, right? Uh, you know, you did what you did. You ended up in prison. It is what it is, but you should be able to serve your sentence in peace oh, and not absolutely. be, you know, violated by the oh, people. My God. Of, of whom your 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 care is entrusted, right? Mm. And this is a culture where you know literally people had supervisors and and guards had been written up under the Prison Rape Elimination Act, and nothing happened. Like they got written up, and that was the end of it. They weren't fired, they weren't suspended, nothing. So because the culture is so toxic, you've got to fire everybody and start yes. over. and wow. encourage in for the women to testify. 
I'm giving a bit of a radical, yeah. you know, solution here. Well, it's not even that radical because it happens all the time in the mob, but yeah. like in mob cases, but like, you know, commute their sentence, whatever it is, if it's a life sentence, if it's five years and their sentence, put them in witness protection in exchange for them testifying against the guards, yes. because there is no place that you could put them where they're going to be safe. Mm. Nowhere in the state of Florida. If you put them outside of the state of Florida, guards still talk. So this their is so, safety oh, is going so to be upsetting. at risk if it's tied to any state or federal entity. Wow. So the only way to hold these guards accountable, because if, number one, you think about the pressure that comes from the, the, the survivors' families, and I'm talking not the survivors of the assault, but like the survivors of the initial crime where, the, you know, the woman was placed in prison. Right. If they're turning around and seeing the sentences get cut in half, they're going to turn around and hold the government responsible for this mm. because it is their fault. There is no reason for this to happen, right? right? So there's going to be pressure from victims' groups. There'll be pressure, obviously, from survivors' groups to make sure that, you know, the women are safe. And that turns into a cautionary tale where now all the other prisons are on notice, like, listen, (laughs) you know, we're not going to let things slide anymore. There's going to be repercussions. And if you're going to take liberties with people, you're not going to get away with it anymore. Those days are over. So those are my two main advocacy. And and is this, is this prison a state run prison or is it private? It's a state run prison. State run prison. It's uh, it's uh, absolutely uh, horrifying. I mean, beyond, beyond. you know, nobody, Mm -hmm. I don't care what the hell they're in there for deserves to be under this kind of, it's, it's, and it's also, it's like a physical assault and trauma, but it's like such an emotional and mental assault as well. And it will affect Mm -hmm. affect those women for the rest of their lives. Like they're never like going to feel safe in a, in a way that is ever the same again. And it's, it's absolutely inexcusable. I I don't, I don't get this. I don't understand how this is happening. I know. It was tw- it's yeah. 2020, like what, 2021 now. Yeah. Wow. Uh, unbelievable. Yeah. God, Melba, thank you so much oh for working God. on this. My God, uh, we need this. Yeah. Jesus. Listen, you gotta, yeah. It's just, I'm, I'm just a person where if I see injustice and, and just wrong, I can't turn my head. I, I just don't know how. So. Yeah. Thank goodness. <laughs> thank goodness yeah. for people like you. I know. My God. That's what we need. Oh yes. my God. No, they, but definitely appreciate as the two of you for, you know, getting the word out and elevating, you know, the, these messages, because at the end of the day, you know, we're all stronger together. And if we have the information that we need to empower us to be able to make wise decisions at the voting booth, to educate others about particular issues, I mean, that that is all key in, in getting us to where we need to be as a society, you know? Yes, one hundred percent. My God. Well, thank you so much for being yes, here. Thank I know, you, thank you, thank you. That we haven't met in person yet, but I'm yes. sure at some point we will, and we can like we absolutely will. Uh, I don't care I can't if it's wait. wine, a margarita. Like, <laughs> let's just do it already. Yes. Yes, come on, vaccine. Let's do this. Come on, I never thought I'd root for a vaccine, but I'm rooting it for a vaccine. (laughs) Let's go. Thank you so much and have a wonderful day. Yes, thank you. You too, you too. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. If you want to learn more about this week's guest, please follow the episode notes on our blog at themuckpodcast.fireside.fm and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at themuckpodcast. To support the Muck Podcast, please visit our Patreon page. We have three levels of support and different goodies for each level. Muckraker, Policy Wonk, or Bleeding Heart. We can't do it without you. Music for the Muck Podcast, written and performed by Sean Doherty.